Father, thank you. Thank you for sending the Son. Jesus, thank you for being the Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice. Thank you, Father God, that we can come together and we can celebrate the goodness, the greatness, the graciousness of who you are. Thank you for the covenant that you've made with us through the blood of your Son. And I ask, Father God, as we come to your word this morning, that you would change us, transform us by your word. And I ask, Father God, the words that I have prepared, that they would be of you and not me, that there would be more of you and, and less of me. Transform every one of us into the image of your Son. In his name, amen. We're going to return this morning to, to 1 Peter. And in the first chapter of 1 Peter, as we've seen, he, he's, he's laid out a foundation, and that foundation is salvation. The, 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 the concepts of, of being saved. The realities of present and future salvation give the, the, the believer an ability to endure hardship and, and difficulties. No matter what we go through in this life, God has given us truths and realities to help us get through. The realities of being born again to a living hope, a future inheritance, uh, being protected by God and the eternal salvation of our souls. All of those concepts that we, we looked at in the first parts of the first chapter, Peter wrote those as fact. They're factual. So he starts the book by laying this foundation of spiritual facts. <clears throat> as Peter continues, he shifts directions a little bit. He's, he shifts from stating fact to giving commands. And it's not that the commands aren't factual, but he shifts his emphasis. He begins to give us commands. Let's read the passage, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Great passage. It begins with a therefore, and, and, and that, that therefore links the factual things that Peter has stated to this passage about application. And in that first, in, in that verse 13, when he begins the application, he, he, he says, prepare. And prepare here literally means to gird up. And it can mean tightening a belt. It can mean cinching a rope tight. It can mean tying something down. 
The term became used often to describe what a person would do if they wanted to move quickly or to do physically hard work. So there's a, there's a historical and cultural idea behind this term. You wanted to go anywhere fast and you're wearing a long robe. Men and women both wore those robes. And you wanted to go anywhere fast. You had to cinch it up. You had, to, you had to go to the effort to get the hem of it, pull it up, and tuck it into your belt. Or you weren't going to go anywhere fast. And that's how you worked hard as well. That's the cultural aspect behind the term. This was also very historical. This goes way back. The, the, the use in this way goes way back. I was reminded of when Israel was preparing for the deliverance from Egypt. When the Passover was first established. When, when God gave them instructions for what was going to happen. He gave them several instructions. Uh, the blood on the doorposts. The, the lamb. The lamb had to be cooked a certain way. There was to be no leavening in the bread. And they were to be prepared to move quickly. And Exodus 12, 11 gives us an idea of, of that, that idea of being prepared to move quickly. It says, now you shall eat in this manner with your loins girded. So pull that up and tuck it in. Your sandals on your feet. Your staff in your hand. And you shall eat in it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Get ready and get ready to go. Back in First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we're to prepare the mind. Prepare your mind. That's what's to be girded up. So what this means is believers are to bring discipline to all their thoughts. To have a lifestyle based on, on biblical priorities and be separated from the sinfulness of the world culture in which we live. And it also means that we're to understand how our future grace influences how we live today. This, this girding up terminology, this metaphor is used in Ephesians 6 by Paul when he's describing the, the believer's spiritual armor. Ephesians 6.14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having girded your loins. This is, again, action. Be prepared. And it's, it's very important that we understand that this preparation is for action. It's, it's a decisive movement. This is not a call to be prepared to be comfortable. God is not saying, I want you to go through this process and get your mind all fixed on how you can be more comfortable. Plan your next vacation. This is not a call for comfort. It's not a call to avoid hard work. This is a command for purposeful action towards a goal. And, and Peter begins to give us practical examples that help flesh that out. What does that mean? He first writes, keep sober. Which literally means don't be intoxicated. Now, now some of us, well at least me, I, I, I 
Before I came to Christ, I, I got intoxicated. One or two times. No, a lot. The understanding that you, you find when, when we talk about spiritual sobriety is that God is talking about control, influence. The understanding is when a person is intoxicated, they lose the ability to control thoughts and actions. I certainly did. There's one Friday in particular I do not know to this day how I got my daddy's car home. I don't remember anything after the first quarter of the football game, including marching in the halftime show. I have no recollection that I either even did that, other than the fact that the halftime show was videotaped, and I watched it on Monday morning and went, yep, I did it. I have no idea how, and I have no recollection of how I got that car home. I was intoxicated. The alcohol was in control. In 1 Peter, the metaphor is not losing spiritual control. The idea is don't lose spiritual control by indulging in the sinfulness of the world system in which we live. It's one of influence and control. Being sober is mostly about influence and control. So spiritually, the, the world can be in control. Or the Holy Spirit can be in control. In many ways, we choose that. Peter's talking about this and he says, Believers are to prepare their minds by having the Holy Spirit influence their every thought and action. By having the the, the Holy Spirit influence us, the mind is disciplined and life then becomes disciplined. And there's, there's a level of self-control. This preparation of the mind comes through the work of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the mind with God's Word. Those two things go together. The Spirit residing in us and God's Word. There's two places that come to mind that help us understand this. One of them is in Ephesians 5.18. Paul specifically t- talks about this influence. 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine. Now, very often, this has been used in the history of the church to prove, see, the Bible says don't drink alcohol. And that's a problem because then later Paul tells Timothy, go have some wine for your stomach. That, that's a problem. The other problem with that is that almost everybody, because the water was so horrible, drank wine. So you, you can't really go there. So what is he getting at? The second part of the verse helps us understand and the overall context. Be filled with the Spirit. It's one of influence. Let the Spirit influence you. Then in Colossians 3.16, there's another component of this that Paul speaks of. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. This, again, has to do with influence. Does the word of God reside in you in such a way that it influences you? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's influence. As Peter goes on back in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, he he begins to give us practical application of preparing the mind. 
So he just doesn't leave us hanging there and, you know, go fix your mind. And then that's the end. He gives us some application help. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope. This is written in such a way and was a term that was associated with the military. This is a military action. This is a command for action. It's not a suggestion. It's not a cute saying. This is a command, and you need to think of it in terms of a military kind of command. Go do this. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought. The idea requires an act of the will, not just trying because of emotions. It's to be the daily spiritual work of the believer. Well, he says, fix your hope. So what is hope? Now, this is an important part that I want you to get because biblical hope is very often misunderstood by believers. And the reason is that culturally and historically, at this time in human history and in our culture, we usually think of hope as nothing more than wishful thinking. We use the term very often like this. I hope I get what I want at Christmas time. It's wishful thinking. Isn't that the way we use it? I, I, hope, I, I hope I get to go fishing. This, this week, Emily and I were talking, you know, I, I hope my garden doesn't freeze to death Tuesday night. Okay, well, that's wishful thinking. It's not based on anything that's factual. It's wishful thinking. In our culture, then, hope, the way we usually use the term, is nearly synonymous with a wish. I wish things would turn out a certain way. can mean the same as, I hope they turn out a certain way. Biblical hope is not wishful expectation. That's not what biblical hope is. Instead, biblical hope is the believer's attitude toward the factual future God has promised. Biblical hope rests upon realities of what God has promised. This means that biblical hope is very similar to faith. Well, what's the difference? The difference between faith and hope is that faith is primarily trusting God in our present circumstances. Biblical hope is trusting in God in our future circumstances. The future trust is not wishful thinking. It is trust based on specific promises that God has made. So faith and hope go together. 11, uh, Hebrews 11 one points that out to us very clearly. When a believer's hope is fixed on the future blessing of God, the hope is settled, confident trust that what God has said is a reality. If I say I believe that Jesus Christ is coming, I am not saying I really hope that happens. I, I, I have this, this kind of real desire that it happens. Instead, the biblical hope says, I hope in what 
is going to happen. That gives me hope and encouragement and direction because it's real. It's based on something that is actually going to occur. It is settled, confident trust. If your hope is only wishful thinking, then you're not trusting God. You're not actually trusting what God has specifically and clearly revealed in Scripture about the believer's future. Is Jesus coming back? Yes. Is there any doubt that he's going to come back? No. Is that my hope? That's my hope. Not because it's wishful thinking, but because it's actually a reality. When I hope in the second coming of Christ, I am anticipating what God has promised. So this hope has this anticipation part. And that's a cool anticipation. Because it's based on something real. Things hoped for by believers are future realities. There's some different ways that we see this in Scripture. And I I wanted to use Abraham because he presents some, some interesting conundrums sometimes with this. Abraham's hope was for a son. Biblical hope. God said, you will have a son. And he meant, you will have a son with Sarah. Abraham had faith. God was who he said he was. God had faith and he believed that God was in control of the situation. And God said he would have a a son with Sarah. Abraham trusted God. So if he said, I hope for my son, he's not saying, I wish that would happen. Although... Abraham slipped into that wrong view of hope and had a son with Sarah's maid and all the problems of that that occurred. So Abraham had to struggle with this whole idea as well. Ultimately, his hope, when you see him at that time of sacrificing Isaac, his hope was in what God had promised It was a reality. So believer's hope is settled. It has a secure foundation because it is based on God's promises. Hope is also a form of worship because of that. That worship aspect of hope, it it rests in the faithfulness of God. If God says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. So we can hope in that, and our hope becomes worship. Because we're saying, God, you are who you say you are, and you never lie. It's a form of worship. When we go there, then we are glorifying God. Biblical hope firmly declares that God will keep his promise. That's exciting, and that's a great place to live. Fix your hope. Fix your expectations of what God has promised. Is what Peter is saying. In verse 13 he refers to grace to be brought. And that's written grammatically to indicate an absolute assurance of a future event. When you look at the grammar behind that. He's saying look at the grace to be, that is going to come. Because it is a fact. So he's reinforcing the same idea. And that future event is the coming of Jesus Christ. 
I love a passage in Revelation. There's many places we could go. But this week I've just just really relished this place in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And in my Bible, those are all capitalized. Is he coming? Absolutely. We're talking about absolute God-sourced truth fact. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. I'm not sure how that's going to work. I don't know how he's going to do that. But every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Even those who are against him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Keep in mind, there's two things right at the end. So it is to be. So he's making a statement. This is, I'm, I'm just stating fact for you. And whenever you see the word amen, what the word really means is, I'm in total agreement with what was just said. So we are in total agreement that Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds. Every eye will see him and those who pierced him and the tribes in the earth. What's the mourning part? Well, they're going to mourn because at that point, they're going to realize they missed it. This is a fact. Our hope is based on future fact. As Peter goes on in verse 14, he gives us another command. And this one we don't like. This is one of those places where when you're preaching, you can watch people's faces just change. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Obedience. And some of you think, I don't want to hear about obedience. Obedient children. I don't want to be an obedient child. I mean, really. All of us go there, right? Don't we? Or is it just me that struggles with this whole idea? The reality is this kind of obedience that Peter is referring to distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. Obedience characterizes true children of God. There's a struggle here. Peter has stated a fact, but there's a struggle. And the struggle with obedience in believers comes from our redeemed spirits being confined within our flesh, fleshly bodies where sin is, sin is still active. There's a struggle. There's, there's some fantastic things that, that Paul gives to us in Romans about this struggle between sin and righteousness. Being saved and still being a sinner and obedience and sin. And if you want the, the full effect of Paul's teaching, you need to really read Romans 1 through 8. That would really set it up well for you. Listen to this, though. This is a, a, an illustration that Paul, who, who some would, would refer to as the greatest Christian of all times. He is, it's Paul. Listen to what he says in, in chapter 7 of Romans about this conflict, beginning in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells 
in me. That is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. This is Paul. In that same chapter, he's, here's, here's the great Paul. And, and in, in reference to this battle going on within him, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. We're no different. The struggle is huge. And even though every believer struggles with and battles against the sin nature of our flesh, believers are continually exhorted by the Word and by the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. So God says, be obedient, be holy. And oh, by the way, I know you're going to struggle. Thanks, God. He knows that we need this. Before Paul wrote chapter 7 of Romans, he wrote chapter 6. It's interesting. He wrote of this struggle there. Beginning in verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. God knows that we're in this struggle. He knows. And the Holy Spirit working through Peter still says, be holy. Peter commands the believers to not be conformed to the former lusts. Well, conformed, what does that mean? Conformed, it means to be shaped by or fashioned after. And the former lusts are the desires, thoughts, appetites, impulses that ruled how we lived before we were saved. How were you before you were saved? Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us you were dead. I've worked with a lot of dead people in my life. Two years working in a mortuary that was also the county coroner's office. And you know what? Day after day of another dead person, none of them made any choices. None of those dead people said, no, no, no. I I want you to change the color in the casket. None of those dead people were able to make any decisions. They were dead. In Ephesians, Paul says, when you were dead, in your sins and trespasses, that's when God showed His grace and sent His Son. Those former lusts, then, are those desires and thoughts and impulses that ruled us while we were dead. When we, that's the B.C., that's before Christ. These were in our ignorance, he says, meaning we didn't know them as being sinful. When you're dead, you don't, you don't have that kind of understanding because you're dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And had not received the new life 
received at salvation. You receive that at salvation. You become a new creature. You've been given life, and the Holy Spirit resides within you. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts saying, you know, when you do that, that's sinful. And all of a sudden, start, you, you start realizing and recognizing that certain things aren't acceptable. That's what Peter's getting at. Now, let's go on because he adds to that, verses 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a big request. Be holy. Peter presents the positive standard of holiness. And that positive standard is... Be holy as the one who saved you is holy. Your holiness should be like God's holiness. So what that means for us in in the reality of walking as a believer is that we are to continually be striving to be like Christ. Jesus puts it a little bit differently, and this is tough. Sometimes the words that Jesus are really difficult. Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a big order. Have you ever stopped to think, how close are you to being perfect as your Father is perfect? That kind of undoes us, or it should. And Paul wrote to the Ephesians, same kind of idea. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitators, be just like God as beloved children. Whoa, that is, that is huge. Some have thought that this is just a a New Testament concept, but that's not true. And we know it's not true because of what Peter wrote. The exhortation is not just New, New Testament because Peter goes back and uses an Old Testament reference. When Peter wrote this, he didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have the New Testament because he was writing the New Testament. So where does he go? He goes back to Leviticus 11.44. You can also find the same thing in Leviticus 19.2 and Leviticus 20, verse 7. Be holy, because I am holy. It's an Old Testament concept. So we come to a conclusion then that the most convincing reason for believers to strive in holiness is because Pastor Bill says, go be holy. That's not true. I have to struggle with this too. The most convincing reason for believers to strive to be holy is their relationship that we have with God through the gift of His Son. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been rescued from eternal death and graciously been given new life in Christ. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in you, and that gives you the ability to be holiness, to, to, to be holy. So go be holy. Because this gift of eternal life, believers instinctively pursue God. 
believers desire to please God, don't, don't we? And we long to be with, with God. We long to be with Jesus. We want to be with our Heavenly Father. Believers identify themselves as having new life in Christ and belonging to God. These are the truths that drive us to pursue holiness. Well, I think we need some practicals. We need some, some real things that we can, we can take from this. And so I want to leave with you some practical ways that we can prepare our minds and that we can fix our hope on the grace that God has given and how we can strive for holiness. How do we do this? Well, the number, number one thing, the first thing on my list is daily time in God's word. You've got to know the truth. You've got to know what that truthful reality is. So read the word, listen to the word, meditate and memorize the word, pray the word, be in the word as a part of who you are and how you live. God's word, the Bible, that's what transforms us into the image of Jesus and solidifies our beliefs. That's where it's at. Number one on the list, get in the word. This is where we build solid foundations to to build the rest of our lives upon. The next one on my list, disengage yourself from our cultural demand to constantly be entertained. Think carefully about what our culture just nearly insists that we do. Our culture is about being entertained, being comfortable, being entertained. The reality is, you do not always have to be entertained. If that's all you're looking for every day, well, let me know how that works out for you. Because it usually ends in, in trouble. How can we do that? Well, instead of watching television or a movie or playing a video game, read the Bible. So you, you, you can do these first two. They help each other. You know, in the first service, my wife was here, and I mentioned that, and I looked at her, and she goes, because I watch a lot of TV. There's days I like to go home after being in the office and plop myself down in my nice comfy recliner and vegetate on a good movie. Okay? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if I spend too much time there, then I'm not doing those things that bring me to holiness. Read the Bible. Instead, the more you read it, the more you spend time there, the more it becomes invigorating. The other thing that you do that's related to this is read a good spiritual book. I'm reading a, an old book. Your God is too small. It's, it's a reread. I've read it several times. And it's hard to read because of when it was actually written. It's still in English, but it's okay. You got to think it through. But the concepts are so deep. 
It takes me to a new place. It revives my soul because I'm hearing something. So those two go together. Disengage from that demand to constantly be entertained. Next, goes along with it. Purposely, take some time. Schedule in your life a time when you deny yourself a pleasure. Some people do this, uh, and it's at Lent around Easter. Okay, that's fine. But from time to time throughout the year, find a way you can go, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, to eat that, or I'm not going to have that pleasure for a week or a month or whatever. And the reason this is important is when we're doing that, when we purposely deny our pleasure, then we are proving that the Spirit of God is in control, that we are in control in a different way, and not our appetites and our lusts. So again, it goes back to who's in control? Who's influencing? Are you influenced only by your pleasure? That's a dangerous place to be. Another one is to stop constantly having to defend yourself. I put this one in because this is so huge at this time of, of history. I see this all the time. And it, and it shows up in my mind in a, in a couple of different ways. Don't defend yourself. You don't have to constantly look to defending yourself. Sometimes it, it shows up in how, how you accept correction. Are you willing to have somebody say, you know, that wasn't a good thing for you to do? Accept correction. Another way is, is be empathetic to others. Actually try to see another person's point of view. Very often we're in a situation and we just, we just respond. We haven't listened to anybody. We don't know where they're really coming from. We just spew because we want to defend our position. Goes along with... Admit when you're wrong. Not that any of you have ever been wrong. How about when you've hurt someone? What goes along with this is be quick to apologize and quick to forgive. And by forgive, I mean the biblical forgiveness. You don't have to defend yourself. Be quick to apologize, quick to forgive. Another one that I see as being important for us is to finish what you begin. There are so many things going on in our lives. Work hard at whatever the task until that task is completed. That, that brings you a place of greater holiness, godliness. If you begin it, finish it. I'm going to mention this now because my son's not here. He was in the first service. I made my two boys play in the marching band in high school. They're both musical, but that's not their forte. You've got two starters on the varsity team. One was playing safety. Peter played whatever and wherever. Continuously. So here they are, halftime show, and they are bloodied and beat up. They're football players and they're in their pads and they're out there with the marching band playing their trumpets. 
They hated me for that. And he said, Dad, you've got to let us quit. And I said, you agreed to do it. You started. You will finish. They finished. Why? To prove me good? No. I celebrate that because they learned this concept. You start, you finish. It doesn't just have to be in that arena. I don't think either one of my sons realized how much that spoke to other people in their high school either. They did it, started, they finished. Finish what you start. The last one is to volunteer. Serve others. If you want to see a greater understanding in your life of being holy, if you want to understand a different way of relating to God, volunteer. Especially volunteer and serve in the body of Christ. This is your body. We talked about, you know, him giving his body, and we we talk about that when we have communion. Well, look around. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you're part of a body. The body of Christ. And and right now, I'm recovering from this this shoulder surgery, and I, I got a right arm that sometimes cooperates and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it hollers bloody murder at me because I reach for things, and it says, no, don't do that. So in a way, it's kind of disconnected from my body. I've got a busted up ankle. I've got 16 deck screws is what it looks like just above my, my right ankle. And there are times when my right foot, I have no idea how it's going to come down. That's why I don't run much. It affects my entire body. You are part of the body of Christ. And if you want to really connect with God and you want to pursue what we're being commanded to to do, then that's part of what you do. You volunteer. You serve. And there goes pastor. He's begging for people to work in the nursery. Okay. Yeah, I am. Why? Because I want you to be holy because God is holy. I want you to serve and volunteer because you're part of the body of Christ. It's good for you. It causes you to become more like Christ. Seriously, how did he serve? How did he volunteer? We just celebrated communion. He willingly came to die for us. Is there any greater service than that? Peter says, be holy. Because I am holy. Because he is holy. Because God is holy. That's who we are. This list is a good list. There are more. There are several more. But this promotes holiness. And it promotes spiritual sobriety. Spiritual influence. I want God to influence who I am, and I want God to influence who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gracious gift of your son. I thank you that in your perfection, 
You have saved us through your Son, and, and you call us to the same perfection. We can only we can only pursue that in you. Jesus, thank you that you willingly came, suffered, hung on the cross, and died. Thank you that you, you laid in the tomb, and, and I thank you that, that you rose from the dead and the tomb is empty. I thank you, Jesus, that you reside in heaven interceding for us who you have saved. Holy Spirit, thank you that you have been sent by the Father and the Son and and you reside within each one of us who are believers. And, And Holy Spirit, I thank you that because you reside in us, you stir us up and you speak to us and you guide us and you influence us. Help us to hear and see and feel your influence in our lives. Oh God, transform us into the image of your Son that you would be glorified over and over for all of time. Be glorified in us as we serve you. Thank you for the gracious gift of your Son. Amen.